everybody, to another episode of the Overdue Rentals podcast, the show where we talk about films that people, hey, maybe they didn't talk about it when it first came out, but they needed to talk about it. Maybe they were talking about it nonstop when it came out, but they're just not talking about it anymore. And we're here to fight, figure out why. My name is Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And Matt. Yes. Tonight's show, I have to say, is definitely an overdue rental. But what's really interesting about it is our guest basically discovered it through the process that we at Overdue Rentals love, which is through friend, friendly companionship. And let alone, not just friendly companionship, but because today our guest is Emily Marsh, who a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans will know because of her work on the, the live tour, though they didn't really see her face, I guess, so much on the stage as she did some of her work, but she's now going to be appearing as one of your three hosts for the new series of Mystery Science Theater 3000. So we want everybody to get familiar, familiar with her. And Mike, what is the film that, that she got shown by her friends on tour with Mystery Science Theater 3000? Uh, that film would be Brian De Palma's cult classic, Phantom of the Paradise. Mike, for people who have never saw Phantom of the Paradise, you wanna give them a quick rundown? Okay, so basically we take Faust, Phantom of the Opera, and the picture of Dorian Gray, throw them in a blender. But if you want an actual story, uh, there is a man, Winslow Leach, played by the great William Finley, who is a s- aspiring singer-songwriter that writes a cantata based on the legend of Faust. And there is a huge record producer by the name of Swan, played by the just incomparable Paul Williams, who wants that music. And he, he's looking for the new sound, and that is the new sound to him. And the woman that gets mixed up in all of this is the lovely, the talented, the strong-willed Phoenix played by all the fellow incomparable Jessica Harper. And it is all a mix of glam rock, high camp, and theatricality that I cannot wait to discuss. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to Beef Town tonight and all stops on the way. Uh, and of course, just, uh, we'll, we'll get to love on this film later, but I just have to say, spoilers for Mystery Science Theater 3000, Emily has the goods. Are there Emily, really that many spoilers though? I don't know, we'll find out. Well, no, I just wanna say that she's awesome and I really enjoy her <laughs> as a host and as a guest, which everyone's going to find out in a moment. Emily Marsh, come on in to the store. Guys, it's a pleasure to be chatting with you and I'm so excited that this movie was on your list. Because um, <laughs> this thing is bonkers. I don't know when's the last time you watched it. <laughs> this well, weekend. Well, Mike, Mike just watched <laughs> it. Was it the first time? No, 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 okay. no, not my first time. Oh. It was my first time back. Yeah. yeah. Ah, got it, got well, it, yes. So, oh, man. Fair, my first time was maybe 10 years ago because I think Phantom of the Paradise was that was circling in my head and it's like this cult movie, mm-hmm. the Paul Williams songs. And it's like, why haven't I experienced this yet? And I got it through the Netflix discs. And then it's like, why haven't I experienced this yet? I, I mean, so I'll confess. So the reason that I picked this movie is because I thought it tied in nicely to the tour um, because doing MST3K live, uh, people always think, well, do you just watch bad movies for your work or do you do it for pleasure? And I have to report to people that, oh no, we did it for pleasure. <laughs> so we would get done doing a show and then we'd go around the bus and say, all right, who's got a bad movie for us to watch on the bus tonight. So it was like a daily dose of bad movies on that tour. And this does not count as a bad movie. No. This is just 
an extreme, like, I don't know. It was, we were all cinephiles on that, but on that tour. And this was from the Merchies who are selling merch on the tour. And they went, guys, you've never seen Phantom of the Paradise. And after watching it, I was like, this, this will <laughs> never leave my brain again. This is staying here for the rest of my life. So, so, so it wasn't until they showed it to you though, that you saw it. Oh, so they showed it to us. So I had never seen it before watching it with them. I love was, those moments. I love when people do that. It's my favorite. It very, it very much is, you know, like, like you say, it's not the quote unquote bad movie, but I think for certain people, they could like, if it popped up somehow on a mystery science theater list, they'd be like, yeah, I understand it. I get it, but it doesn't, but it doesn't kind of belong there. It's, it's kind of got this weird, uh, you know, kind of like limbo line. It, it, it uh, balances on. Yeah, I think it's more, maybe it's like similar to, you could have an argument about whether it's good or bad. I think, I mean, just unforgettable as I feel like all you can say about it. <laughs> oh yeah, well, oh, definitely. It, before and we it, jump it, too far into, into Phantom yeah, of the Paradise true. though. Oh so yes, sorry. there's we, business. Let me pull it we, back. We do, we yeah. do want, we do definitely also want to talk about some Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, stuff. Because... Uh, I guess, I, I guess. You know. <laughs> I mean, I, no, I, no, no, I can't I, wait for I, that either. I thought I read you were the first female host here. I could be wrong, you know. Hey, you know, oh, they kept telling me that and I kept telling them they're ridiculous. <laughs> that can't be real. I can't That's not possible. <laughs> not in and this uh, modern world of learned equality. <laughs> it was more like uh, even when they first picked me up for the live tour and in the actual show, it was teased at the end that like, oh, Emily's going to be the new host. And I remember people asking me about it on the first tour and I went, eh, I'm sure it's a shtick. Like, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure it won't come like, cause that would be like too great a, a miracle, a dream to come true. That I was like, oh, I can't wish that high. I'm just happy to be on this stage. And then cut to like the day before filming. And I was like, oh, wow, I think it, I think it's really happening. I think I was in denial for a while, but this is really going to be a thing. That was and, a contract. Uh, it was <laughs> <laughs> is it something where, you know, because I know on the tours, there's just select two to maybe three films or, or two films and then shorts. Mm -hmm. So like, it's not like you have to have week-long, month-long writer's rooms where you have to work out some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But with your participation from the live show compared to the now recorded shows, is it the same thing, different? Well, so basically what happened is it is different. Um, but what Joel was super nice about was not only was it, hey, you're going to be the first female host of MST3K, but also you are like in the trenches in the writer's rooms writing on the new season. So I got to be a writer. So the way it ended up was I didn't get out of any of the torture of having to sit with these movies for <laughs> weeks, um, which I still got to do. Um, but as a result, I mean, it was so helpful because when we went in to film the episodes, like compared to the show where you get to watch, I mean, I watched Making Contact 66 times and it's a terrible uh -huh. movie. It, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up after 66 times. I can I say this. It after the first. Oh gosh, it was so bad. It's so bad. It makes no sense. It's so dumb. Roland, it's dumb. Um, <laughs> but then when you're filming, it's like you do something only once. It's like a whole riff pass of a film. And at the end, they're like, sweet, that was great. A couple pickups, but we're moving on. And I was like, wait, you, you sure that was funny? Should we do it again? I mean, you're sure that's funny, right? <laughs> and then you don't see it again for months and months and months until um, we had a soft premiere for the backers, which was my first episode. 
And uh, that was my first time seeing it. So I was like, this could either be wonderful or a total disaster in the worst night of my life. And luckily it wasn't the worst night of my life. It was actually pretty good. It's actually pretty funny. Well, do you also um, get to like, in that sense, it was just like, we knew what movies were doing. We're sitting, we're writing for these movies. Did you get to choose which one? Like when you're writing it, was it like, we knew this is Emily's episode. We knew this is Jonah's episode. We know this is Joel's episode or just write the jokes and then we'll decide later. Oh no, we had no idea who was doing which movie. Um, which is kind of nice because then my ego can't get involved, which is actually the whole part of the writer's room in MST3K. Like it's a very democratic writer's room. Like everybody pitches their jokes. It all goes into the Excel sheet. And then at a later date, you go back through and see which ones like rise to the top. Mm. Um, so actually people ask me, they're like, do you remember which jokes you wrote for like which episodes? And I remember a couple, but for the most part, I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea what I wrote. Uh, so then it was nice that when you get around to the movie, I couldn't remember if I was performing my lines or like jokes that somebody else had written. It just kind of becomes like this team effort. Uh, but yeah, we had, we had no idea. And I think there was a lot of finagling behind the scenes. I think Joel, the Oracle was deciding and would kind of let us know. It's like, oh yeah, we're thinking about this one for you. But then ultimately like a week out from filming, it was like, okay, these are the, these are the movies. So it was a surprise, a good surprise, but a surprise. <laughs> I would think that that's just what sums this show up the most anytime it comes back. Because anytime someone talks about we're bringing Mystery Science Theater back. Uh, you know, Comedy Central wants it. Sci-Fi wants it. Netflix wants it. We're we're doing a Kickstarter. It's like, okay, is this gonna work? And it's not because anyone's done anything bad. It's just because it's something so close to the heart of so many people that it's like, it's like Futurama. It's like they keep getting lucky that it's just working every time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I mean, it's true. And it's also, well, I think there's like two things going in its favor. The one thing is that this show is so near and dear to so many people's hearts like that, that I mean, for me included, like, I mean, I got to watch my episode premiere on Friday night with my dad who introduced me to mystery science theater and see him laughing at me on the, uh, it was like all the feels I, uh, it was so great. So to have that, like this show means so much to so many people. And the only reason it's here this time around is because everybody was like, okay, cool. Second Kickstarter, let's go next season. Yeah. Um, I think also the other thing that it has in, in its favor, which I still can't understand is that Joel has this impeccable ability to just like pick the right people. It's so crazy. Like even um, one of his lead producers, like Matt McGinnis, who is like the funniest guy, just totally has the sense of the show, was a fan. And he met Joel doing a writing class at a community college years ago before they came back for Netflix. And Joel just had that sense. He was like, hey, you're a great writer. I think you'd be great to be a part of the show. And now he's like this integral part of the whole sense of at Mystery Science Theater. Uh, and then, you know, same being true of like me and the live crew, like we were just people in an audition. We had never worked before, together before in our whole lives, but there was something about it. Joel was like, these people will work well together on a bus for six months, all like in a very contained environment. And yeah, by some miracle, we all became like the best of friends. It was crazy. It's like, it's like just this huge family. And like, you can even tell just even in, in the jokes themselves, because while Honestly, obviously over time, there's like some newer stuff, like newer references that get thrown in. There's still some of the classic Hollywood stuff. 
there's some really oh, personal yeah. stuff like your Bush Gardens joke, which I heard that and it's like, mm -hmm. I miss Bush Gardens. <laughs> but it's just, that's, that's just one of those most, one of the most beautiful things I can think about it is it's never subtracting, it's always adding. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think this time around, we had uh, getting to be in the writer's rooms. So they were on Zoom because we couldn't all be in the same place because of COVID. Um, but that actually worked to our advantage because we had so many, a wide variety of writers in this room. Like we had people who were like, yeah, I'll write on Mystery Science Theater and they're writing for The Daily Show. And you're like, yeah. oh my gosh, this show like brings all of these different corners together. Um, some people who had written on the show years ago came back to write on this season. And it was, it's just nice that the original core of the show and then adding on, like you said, it's like adding on a little bit of like newer references, but keeping the old ones that like everybody loves. And yeah, we just got to be like the best version, best nerd version of ourselves, like combining powers, so. Yeah, it's like something that Mystery Science Theater always was able to, it's, it's kind of like the early, not even the early, but just when they actually made the Zucker Abrams Zucker films and it was them making it, like people try to make stuff after, but it mm -hmm. never had the same feeling. Mystery Science Theater always has that same feeling, no matter what, it just works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if it's because like Mystery Science Theater was this generational thing, because I know that I watched it, my dad shared it with me, and that story was definitely so true at all the live shows, like people being like, hey, I watched it as a kid with my parents, now I am bringing my kids to watch this, and it also has such a strong sense of, I don't know, it, like the tone of Mystery Science Theater is just always so strong mm. and fun and silly. And maybe like those two things, like passing it down, but then it also have a, having a strong sense. It's, it's like somebody was talking about like doing acting for mystery science theater. Cause there's obviously film acting, which is all like hoity-toity, it's up here. Um, and then there's getting to do this show. And it was like, oh, anything else would be super intimidating to act on. But for mystery science theater, I was like, I've been watching this since I was a kid. I know how to do this. This like shaped my comedic timing. Um, so it was, yeah, maybe that gave it a sense of just like getting to watch it as a kid and then be part of it. And I know that was a story for so many people involved on this season. Yeah. Well, it's just like here on Overdue Rentals, we love to focus on the movies that haven't really gotten a lot of time. And mm -hmm. that's for usually a good reason or an entertaining reason. Mystery mm -hmm. Science Theater is entertaining and maybe bad reasons, but it's still that Venn diagram of sharing movies with people because everyone's gathered to have a good time and this is mm -hmm. gonna be, we're gonna be able to riff this no matter what. And I guess it just, Mystery Science Theater almost kind of felt like welcoming someone else into the living room with you or being welcomed into someone's living room and saying, okay, Danger Diabolic, Beyond Atlantis, these are real stinkers, mm -hmm. ride it out with us because they're fun. They're not like, you're, you're gonna have fun and you're going to, you might even find yourself falling in love with this movie. A hundred percent. And that's, that was the energy I always liked to think of. Like even on the days when we were on tour and doing shows and it was like, you just get tired. You were driving like on bumpy roads and you just didn't sleep well the night before. But the thing that always I kept in mind before we'd start a show, I'm like, look, it's not a performance. It's actually like we're having a sleepover and we've invited like 400 of our best friends to come watch this silly movie that we cannot wait to laugh at and like enjoy together. And that was totally like reciprocated. Like I've never had an experience like I have with MST3K fans 
where it feels so much more of like, I don't know, like people reaching out to say like, welcome to the family. Like this was such a wonderful time. It just feels so personal. Like when people reach out and I've performed in lots of circumstances and I've never had that kind of like instant family connection with complete strangers. Like my parents being like, who's DMing you? And I was like, no, 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 it's not strangers. It's Misty's. It's fine. They're cool. They're allowed. Right. We have a shared interest. You showed to me, Dad. You should know. You should understand. You know, if you're ever in trouble, you can just show the Misty, like, just the it stinks to the sky, and they'll assemble and get you out of any scrape that you're in. Which is or interesting. Just let that oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Go, Matthew. Go I was going to say it's interesting too because you get to throw in uh, an oh poopy for your first for your first uh, hosting episode, which is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, that was the one that was because Jonah directed that episode, so there was a lot of like the best the best crew to have in the room for when you're like I really hope I don't mess up this whole hosting thing like before I even start. But you have Jonah directing, being like I totally understand everything you're feeling right now, and I'm here to help you. Joel being on the side, who's just being like you're killing it, man. You're doing a great job. It was like, there was so much positive feedback. And the poopy was Jonah being like, hey, Joel, can she do it? And he's like, of course. And I was like, yes, excellent. Here we go. He's starting off strong. Passing, I, I love that story. That's the perfect passing of the yeah. torch. And speaking of passing torches, we are now going yes, to move yes. into Phantom of the Paradise because while we are excited to talk about MST3K, we're excited to talk about Phantom of the Paradise. We only have so much time. And we got off to a, ro- obviously we got off to a roaring start with this movie. And uh, yeah, just, uh, well, since Matthew, I don't think Matthew answered this question. Matthew, what was your first? Oh, experience? I mean, look, I, I saw it when I was a kid, definitely on cable, like somewhere on HBO, maybe he was showing it. I don't remember, to be honest with you. But, I, you know, like it was definitely at a time where I'm trying to learn about films and to me at that time, you know, my father would introduce me to Brian De Palma stuff. And, you know, stuff I probably, again, shouldn't be watching, like Body Double and like all of De Palma doing his Hitchcock remakes. And then thinking about this, which is even though it's early in his career, the most un-De Palma film you could probably ever, ever think of, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. And I'm sorry to, that the audience cannot see this, but Emily's face when Matthew said he saw it as a child thrilled me with the, the sort of the I... delight and the sort of the scare that was in there. I was just wondering, what was your impressions as a child? What did you think was happening? I saw a lot of stuff like between the ages of 10 and 13. So that's when I started showing my interest in movies. And so I was allowed to like, just kind of like experiment and see things and be shown things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this one, I didn't, this one, I just, I just happened upon. Mm -hmm. And even at a young age, I was very, very, very well-versed in a lot of stuff. So I, I could, I knew Phantom of the Opera, you know, and I, 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 I even thinking... knew Faust stories in a way. So like, I could like, I'm like, okay, I get it. But like, at the same time, I'm like, what the hell's going on? I'm like, what is happening? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That really painted the picture of Matthew as this well-read kid, very intellectual, who's like, yes, well, this is obviously homages yes. to this movie. Yes. <laughs> while the emotional child underneath is going, what the hell is going now on get here? get me my juice box, please. <laughs> Who is this <laughs> guy? I'm having conflicting feelings here. Which just, I mean, that's another thing that I love about Phantom, even in its time frame, which is like, still, there were some more libertine films at that time. It still feels so fresh and progressive. And then you've got the satire, but also the homage to stuff that was in pop culture then. And then it's kind of crazy that this was a year before Rocky Horror Picture Show came out. 
Right. That's what I was saying is like, this should be yeah. as well known as Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I was trying to figure out why it wasn't. And maybe, maybe, maybe it's only the tunes. I, I would be hard pressed to whistle a tune mm. from Phantom of the Paradise. I also yeah. have to wonder somehow if it's like, look, I, I tried to look, I couldn't find anything. I'm probably making stuff up in my head. But you know, since Rocky Horror Picture Show did exist as a stage show prior to Phantom of the Paradise. And I'm wondering if it was like to Palma, like, I would like to make a film this, but there was already underway and they couldn't get it. He's like, let me do this now. And that's how this mm -hmm. came about. I don't know. It Even though apparently, there no. was apparently one live production of it, but that was after the movie. You guys are definitely right. It wasn't a thing before. Yeah. Yeah. And then even if he did see Rocky Horror and, and Brian De Palma was like influenced to do his own version, Rocky is sort of the, it's almost like another case of Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove where Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe come from the same book, but mm -hmm. Failsafe is the serious textured one. That's your Phantom of the Paradise. And then mm -hmm. Rocky Horror is the Dr. Strangelove where it's like, we're going madcap with this. And yeah. you can love them both so beautifully because of that difference. Mm -hmm. No, there are some like, I mean, you can see kind of some of the things that are come going to come later with Palma. I was thinking about Carrie because there are like as madcap and comedic as that movie is, there are some like, I mean, visually, there are some like very upsetting, like camera, the vibe of this movie. Like I remember there are certain parts where you're like, you just have kind of a bad taste in your mouth and it's totally intentional of like that sort of mad scene, like, all the drug use and the kind of crazy costumes. And you're just like, oh, this is this den of sin they're creating here. And it does get to that weird sort of like, oh, this is like hitting on some real emotion in here. Like, this is like a descent, a tragedy we're watching. I think it's technically called like a comedy tragedy musical or something like that. Like they list four different genres. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. I'm like, this movie keeps going between like making you laugh and making you be like, oh, whoa, that was... That was gnarly, what just happened there. Those four genres are comedy, tragedy, satire, beef. Because <laughs> we all, we want beef. We oh, can't yeah. have enough beef. We even need the more. juicy fruits. Well, I mean, even talking <laughs> about traumatizing imagery, you know, like William as the Phantom is just like, I don't know how people thought of it when it first came out, but like you look at it now, even look at the poster, the way they, they, they stylized it. It's kind of, mm -hmm. it's really terrifying. Oh, it's definitely like Edward Scissorhands before Edward Scissorhands, yeah. but like, oh, yeah. like it, it's ridiculous and he has such a heightened performance, but like, I mean, it's some crazy costume and like crazy image to have. And also too, like some of those backup singers, like especially for the, um, I was thinking about of like of all the theatrical productions in Phantom of the Paradise, I think my favorite is where Beef gets introduced and where he dies. That like set piece was like Edward Gorey-esque. Like I was like, whoa, yes! he went all out with like describing this and like really putting it on. That was like my favorite number all over again. And it's also one of those movies where even the bad versions of the songs aren't bad. Like that whole sort of like sex rock beefs got going with the, with the before Phoenix actually gets the song and does it properly. Like that's just pure energy and then you've got the theatricality of it and it's another one of those movies where it's less of a 
less of a narrative feature and just more of a vibe feature that has that basic, the basic basis of the story. But you're here for the stagemanship. You're here for the songs. You're just, mm-hmm. even Winslow's death rides that line or his disfigurement rides that line yeah. of really funny sort of satirical stuff. And then it gets to the record press and it's like, whoa. Which, um, because I do love watching a movie and then being like, let me look up some fun trivia about this movie just to know, because obviously this seems like it was insane. Like there's no way you could manufacture like that chaotic nature. Like some of that had to be happening backstage. And uh, apparently he almost got his head caught in that press. So that scream was apparently real, which is crazy. That's like- Oh, go ahead, Mike, go ahead. That's like Leonardo DiCaprio and Django Unchained stuff. Oh, I was thinking of uh, Aragorn like kicking the Urukai head, and you're like, "Yeah, keep that scream in." It's it's funny. That's what you guys think about, and I go to thinking about like the old, uh, you know, who knows if it's true tale about um, what is it? Was it Guns and Roses or you know where it's like somebody? Oh, that's really somebody having sex and they're orgasming in the background, but it never really happened, you know, in real life. And, and it's just like a tall wife's tale that Slash tells through the years. And then or was it, was, was, was it about the women getting stuck to honey? It was, oh, what R&B song was that? And it's like, they tried to pull her up from the ground and got stuck and she's like, and that's the scream of the beginning of the song. I have to look it up. I don't know. Oh, I'm, for some reason that was making me now think of like, my name is Dolomite, like-esque things. It's like, oh yeah. And then they really broke the bed. They were really no. doing it that hard. You're like, nah. <laughs> What's also funny, I think about Fan of the Paradise as a, as a, as we get, you know, through the years now, because again, yeah, it is a very big cult classic. It's got a following, it's got festivals thrown for it and everything like that, but I still Yellow think- Yellow like, Toro like, loves it. Yeah, well, well, but for younger audiences, like, like kind of like witness it, like they're not gonna know who the hell Paul Williams is and how important Paul Williams, just like as a musician, songwriter, however you want to consider it, like was at one point or another. And like, yeah, seeing a baby driver and they may be like, maybe they'll search it, but they see this, they won't <laughs> search it, you know? Even though I was remembering watching this movie, I think somebody like, cause obviously, you know, you watch it and you're like, oh my gosh, it's Paul Williams. This has all of that information behind it. You're just like, wow, that's crazy that he is doing this. But I think if you didn't know, I think his performance holds up. Like I was forgetting, you forget how much he's acting until he has that scene where it's like very, <laughs> I, lo- I do love that shoehorning in to be like, you think he might be the devil. Let's show you a clip from the past and really confirm he's the devil. And that was really making me laugh. But in that scene where Paul Williams is just like acting high before he like makes the deal, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Like he's actually acting his like ass off right now. That's pretty good. So I think he really, even not knowing that it's Paul Williams, I think the thing would just, I think it still stands up, not even knowing any of the context about it. Oh yeah. And even just knowing, even just seeing Jessica Harper being introduced in this movie, even not knowing Suspiria or Shock Treatment or anything else, seeing her introduced in this, it doesn't feel like much of an introduction because she's already there to play and she's already got it all there. She really is. And I was forgetting how, you know, let's talk a little bit about female agency because, you know, as as a woman representing in in film, I've got to talk on this. Um, I really do like in Phantom of the Paradise, they don't make her like, I'm a weak woman who's not like just being used. Like, I love that she's like, no, I'm down. I'll do anything. You want to go? Let's go. And you're like, wow, okay, cool. She's like so on board to like totally sell her soul in this situation. And that was like so refreshing. Mm-hmm. She's also just so 
captivating to watch, which I'd known from Suspiria, but this is like a whole nother, I don't know, level of camp, but sincerity that yeah. she really just nails so well. Yeah. Especially because she's got the most heavy lifting. Oh yeah. I mean, even in the end, like you still get a little bit of your phantom, you know, Christine and phantom, but it's never, he's lusting after her so much. It's more of a, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to you, but I want you to have my music because I care that much. And even in that last moment where she's like there with him, like she didn't have to sacrifice herself. She didn't have to go goo-goo-eyed or anything. Like she's still pretty strong up until the end. And like, even mm -hmm. in that moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And also too, like her sort of like participation, like she always seems pretty down to be a part of this process as long as she gets to sing. That somehow was like her whole deal where she was like, oh, yeah. I will do anything as long as I can sing, which that is so funny. We were talking the first time we watched it because of course, as Mystery Science Theater cast, we are nightmares to watch movies with. That That's fact. Like no one's shutting up at Good all. <laughs> like we watched Nell on the bus and that was insulting to Nell. I felt oh. bad. Like we were just talking constantly. We were merciless with that movie. Um, I'm so sorry for anybody who loves Nell. We really, we really did you a disservice that day. Um, <laughs> but so we were watching this one and I first didn't like Peg that it was Jessica Harper. And so we were like, why is she dancing so weird? And we were just thinking about like her dance moves were like very odd, but very like captivating, but definitely unusual. And then to think it was like interesting and she's singing in this one, then we'll go to Suspiria with dancing being the emphasis. And it's like, she definitely is a triple threat. Is that her singing? That's not her singing. Is That's it? her singing. That's her singing? She even sings in, oh, she even sings in rock treatment too, uh, shock treatment, if you haven't seen it. No, I have, writing that down. Ooh, I have to see and shock then write down the, the, the opera that we're gonna write out of it called rock treatment now that we've done that <laughs> yes. by accident. We're it's just going to be a mashup of Phantom of the Paradise and Shock Treatment together, <laughs> and it's going to be Oh, beautiful. my. Oh but my she, like, her and Cliff DeYoung are an amazing Brad and Janet in Shock Treatment, and it's like, yeah, I kind of miss Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon, but at the same time, it's like, no, they're killer. In fact, I think that was the first movie I saw her in, oh. and then later I saw Phantom, and it's like, oh, well, I know I'm, I know I'm set here. I, I don't mean to waste any time, but I have the strangest Jessica Harper story that goes nowhere in that. <gasps> oh, please do. I was please covering the Fantastic Fest. Time. I was covering <laughs> Fantastic Fest, I don't know how many years ago, when the Suspiria remake was about to come out. And that was the surprise screening for us. And they told us for the surprise screening, we'll have some interviews for you the next day. They didn't tell us with who. And it ended up being with Jessica Harper. So the night before I see the movie, I go back to my hotel and I immediately get tremendous pains from having a kidney stone. Didn't know that at the time. So I had to cancel my interview with Jessica Harper, but then I flew home with this kidney stone only to be seated three rows behind Jessica Harper on the same plane. But I couldn't, but I couldn't go up and talk. I was just like, I couldn't, I, I would have been a mess, but that's, no! that's the weird story. <laughs> that, that's, now that's a tragedy. That's yeah. a comedy tragedy right there. Did you call the kidney stone, Jessica Harper? Well, I, call, I, I called it rock treatment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and then Always the inspiration, the it all comes around. Yep. Yeah, there's going to be that. singing Kidney Stone in, in, in our version of Shock Treatment <laughs> and Rock Treatment. It's going to be very interesting, but uh, well, I think we can get it ready. <laughs> yeah. I think so. There's definitely, I think she'll definitely be on board. 
Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. We'll get her. We'll get her we sign off. I think we need to get Jessica Harper on the show. Of course we do. <laughs> okay, I'm not the same as that. <laughs> she's not busy. She's hanging out. She's fine. I think she has actually done like children's lullaby records or like children's music records, but nothing oh like gosh. nothing Raffi or you know Sharon Lewis and Bram like actually like just beautiful sort of like music you know for kids. That's that's amazing. What a full what a full circle career. That's yeah. like what we should all aspire to. It's like Phantom of the Paradise to lullabies, you know? It's just span, spans generations. That's, uh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is funny to see the, um, the cast, like looking up the cast and like doing a little bit of like, where are they now? And I do, has question, like have we seen William Finley really in anything else since this movie? He was in a couple things. Like I think he was in Simon, which was like, one of Woody Allen's cohorts trying to make the most Woody Allen movie, Woody Allen, never Woody Allen, Woody Allen. Oh. And uh, I'm trying to think, it, it, it was this whole thing. But other than that, I'm trying to think of what else he might've been in. I, yeah. I didn't even look it up to be honest with you. I probably should have, but I didn't. <laughs> well, it, it just seems like you always know, you can tell that people never went on to do anything else when their picture is only of the movie you're looking up. And yeah. that was true of William Finley. It was like, here he is as Winslow Leach. And I was like, oh boy, then his career did not go anywhere, which is surprising. Cause he is, get, I mean, he is committed. You can say committed about everybody in this movie. They're, they're people who go off, they just, wanna, they just wanna be farmers and they just, they leave it and they, and they love it. You know, what can you say? However, uh, a, a note to close on since you have brought up the subject, Emily. Uh, mm -hmm. It looks like he was a diploma regular because not only was he, was he in Sisters, but then he was in if The Fury. I think The Fury is one of his. Uh, Dress to Kill. Uh, oh, Black really? Dahlia is his final film. Yeah, like you know, he came back, back. Like literally, there's a gap between 93 and 2006. And he came back in 2006 for Brian De Palma. That's so wild. So he just became, basically he went to his farm until Brian De Palma calls him. And then he goes, all right, one more. Put oh, on the helmet. This is brother-in-law. We just didn't know. That's so funny. I have to look up who he was in Black Dahlia because I have, I have a beef with that movie only because I love the book so, so much. And that movie just... That was disrespectful. I, I really, I'm that person who will say, have you read the book? It's fantastic. This adaptation is trash. Well, we don't, we don't have to, we don't have to always cover things that we like on this show because I'm a big James Elroy fanatic. So we'll have you back. We'll talk about that because unfortunately we have to let you go now. Come we'll back for anything, anything. You are welcomed into our living room. Well, James Elroy was definitely the way to get me to come back because I could talk all day about that. Done and man. done and done. We got to have, we, we'll, we'll schedule that. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks Guys, again. thank you for having me. Have a thank great day. So much, Emily. <laughs> Absolutely. You guys too. Bye. Emily Marsh, ladies and gentlemen, also known as Emily Connor on Mystery Science Theater. Yes, you know what? I didn't, that's funny. I didn't bring that up. That's a good point because again, since, well, you know, Mike got to keep his name, but everybody else has different last names. I never really thought about that before, because yeah, because Jonah's Jonah Heston, and then I'm assuming Sarah. I'm, I'm assuming Emily is Emily Connor. Maybe is a nod to Terminator, like Sarah Connor. It's possible. I don't know. We we, we should ask her that. Things, Emily, things we thought about way too late. <laughs> Emily, if you're listening to this, we're gonna ask you next time. So be ready. Yeah, because I don't actually. It's a good because I don't know. Well, look. When it started off and Joel was doing it, we get it, you know, it's just like, hey, I'm going to have a character name kind of thing. And I don't think there's anything behind it. 
Chris Wyman Mike took over. Oh, sorry. What was Joel's name on the show? Joel, Joel Robinson. But so then when Mike took over, I guess they get to just, just, just like, hey, I'll just be Mike Nelson. Doesn't make a difference. And then I guess when Jonah came on, I didn't even I talked to Jonah when he first joined on. I didn't think why did he decide to do with the same different last name like Joel did. And I guess Emily did the same thing. Well, now I have to wonder if that's some sort of another one of the minor disconnects that sort of came with the Nelson era, because this is no like I'm, I'm sure there's no ill will between anyone. And, you know, it, obviously things happen the way that they did for. Well, there's some ill will. Yeah. There is. <laughs> but I don't remember if it's any part on Mike Nelson's part at all, but just the Nelson era seems to be. In, in a wide scheme of mystery science theater, and this is a metaphor everyone's probably going to call me out on from the get-go, his was like the Lazenby era, because now that you've got the Hodgson and, you, you, well, not Hodgson, but now you've got like more of the original players back from Netflix on, it's like... So you're talking about more about, you're talking about more of like the disconnecting it from the whole, I don't know, I yeah. still don't know. I don't know if I'd agree with that. But the Lazenby era, uh, uh, well, just for the comparison fact between the Mike, two, like later Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, uh, Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett. Okay, I had to remember everyone, but that was the era I grew up on. They all went and did like the movie crew and riff tracks later. Yeah, but like you would have thought that even with the big reboot, like maybe they would have been brought in to like I know I think Bill was brought in in like the the Netflix era. To play the brain brain guy again. I can't even remember now. It's just weird. Anyway, we might even just cut this whole thing out because I again I don't want to sound like a bad fan, but to me, okay, that's not a bad fix. To me, it almost felt like it was slightly removed, but never ignored. No, of course not. Definitely not. But it's look, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming out now about how you know why because I I think from what I understand is they could have kept going with Netflix, but it just like. It seemed um, like a kind of um, against the code because they got so much money from Netflix to do it. And it's like, it's gotta be chintzier. It's gotta be a little mm. more like, you know, just like we're guys in a basement instead of like, we have all this money behind us. Almost like the sci-fi era where it's like, you can only do science fiction films. You can only do, yeah. whereas like you go back to, the, that was something that really got me because the first time I watched Mystery Science Theater I think this was the first time was on my grandmother's television in Brooklyn. We were over for a visit and it was on comedy. I think it was on comedy central. All so it was been, yeah. older episodes where they were still doing like noir films or like all these other ones. And then obviously I got into it deep in the sci-fi era and it was all science fiction movies. And then, you know, mystery science theater, the movie does the silent earth and all this other stuff. But I will say uh, that theme song, no matter what version it is, that theme song is warms my heart be, just because of the promise of it being Mystery Science Theater. And I really did like the Bone yeah. Guy version from Netflix. I thought that was the most extravagant and sort of sh the most showy. But the new one this season is actually kind of cool because it's like Felicia Day and Patton Oswalt are singing. It's almost like encouraging people to sing along. Yeah, no, yeah, because it's like everybody's got their own little part of it now instead of just having yeah. it, having one person performing it. And I don't want to go into certain parts of why I think it may have changed this time around, but there are some things as to why maybe they had to do it again. We can talk we about that off camera. Sorry? Yeah. Because this is supposed to be all love here. But, but that's, look, and that's the thing, like, 
Emily kind of brought it up too when we talked to her, and I what I thought was interesting too because I, I saw before right before maybe maybe like three or four months before Corona hit. I did see Mystery Science Theater 3000 live at my brother. He bought that was my birthday present of 2019 for my brother. We went to go see it in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, it is that idea that, you know, they only have like two movies in a short. They're doing over and over again. And the one thing I didn't get to ask her, which I thought thought would be interesting to find out, is that how much deviation is there? Look, the script's the same. But like, I can't, now I can't even remember the name of the movie we saw, but there's this one great scene where a guy's like reaching into his pocket and Joel is just like, I can't even remember what he said, but it was, it was the most perfect thing. Like everybody in the audience is thinking it and he says it, but I'm wondering if there are different inflections on different nights, if he's a little more overzealous with it on other nights, you know, just to keep it kind of fresh when you're on the live kind of circuit with things. Um, Cause again, when you're doing the recorded, you know, yes, you get to play around with it, but I imagine there is, and again, I've gone through the history of how they recorded back in the day and how it's changed, but um, you know, it's, they do it. It's like a straight live straight through, even though they're the timestamps for them. And I'm sure they can cut here and there, but it's still just like a A to B. Um, so like, I was kind of interested in asking that. We just, we just unfortunately didn't have time. No, honestly, Emily is one of those guests where, well, I'd like to say this with all of our guests, really, there's not enough time with anyone, yes. but especially here, because this just, going just this just felt so warm and and delightful and just this is she is another one of those guests that i would say totally gets yeah well almost almost uh, you know look and you know it's great but almost maybe overly too much because like she she came in ready to like all right let's talk about fan of the paradise (laughs) not even ready to talk about mystery science theater That was fantastic. It's like, you know, it's like normally it's let the guests set the pace and it's like, we'll have, you know, our internal markers where it's like, okay, we've got half an hour with a guest. We'll do 15 minutes on the new movie. And then usually you'll ping me to, to throw it over. I'll ping you. It's like, should we throw it over? Yeah, and yeah. Because, you know, again, we're working on other people's schedules. We want to get as much as we can out of it. But at the same time, when you've got a guest that's just raring to go and she just jumped in on it, it's like, Wow. We'll find our way back to Mystery Science Theater, but let's, we're going to ride this energy. Like that's, that's just showmanship. And yeah, to get back to Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. Oh, my heart loves this movie so much. And I remember, I remember first watching it and not, I think I didn't totally know what to think of it. I had already seen Rocky Horror at that point. You know, I I was still kind of, wrestling with how I felt about that for years because it's like on one hand Rocky Horror is not a a, and this is in quotes a good movie like if you really if you're really trying to follow a story in that film like it runs out of gas really quickly sure but the magic of that film and to a certain to a certain extent the magic of Phantom of the Paradise is you dig into the charm you dig into the background and well Phantom of the Paradise is more and more narratively structured and more narrowly yes. put together than Rocky Horror. Well, because so, cool. yeah, what I would say is, you know, in, in a lot of ways is where Rocky Horror, I think, gets its fervor from, is from the music. And even though you have these Paul Williams songs in Phantom of Paradise, Phantom is more of just like this trippy kind of like, what in the world is going on adventure compared to one where people are just like, connecting themselves with the showmanship more than anything else oh yeah i mean rocky horror is really i mean also it's just a film that a lot of people have taken 
as like an identity politics sort of charge because of the sort of LGBTQ, yeah. you know, nature of it. And that's another thing that, you know, gives Rocky Horror its charm because you have this movie where, again, it's, it's um, I think I said this, oh, I'm saying, I'm going to say this for another film that we're going to be talking about, but it's like, I love these weirdos. It's like, you just, <laughs> when you are a weirdo, I am a weirdo. And when you see other weirdos having fun, it draws you into that because sometimes as a weirdo, if you are around normal people too much, you can get grounded and you can be in like masked normal mode. But when you see the other weirdos and they welcome you and you just open your fucking arms to it. When and you, that is part of why I love Phantom and that's part of why I love Rocky Horror. When you said that, I couldn't help with it. Now here's, here's a weird thing where you can like date yourself into like a weird subsection of the internet age. Because when you said that, I immediately thought of, uh, I'll ask if you're familiar with before I go into it. Are you familiar with I Am Ninja? No. At least so there, was, there, was, there was a guy back when the internet first really became like, before YouTube was like that, it was like Ask a Ninja. And it's a guy just, sorry, you do know. Yeah. Wait, the guy that wrote Real Ultimate Power. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Oh, well, there was a book about ninjas called Real Ultimate Power. I gotta see, I gotta look. Look, Well, basically it's it's like, it's like, it's him just being very, it's like, he's dressed up as a ninja. He's like, so you want to know, can a ninja really be invisible? And I'm here and, but he has a theme song and the theme song is, I am ninja, you are ninja, we are ninja too. I am ninja, you are ninja, we can be a ninja with us too. And so when you said that, all I thought of was, I'm a weirdo, you're a weirdo, we are weirdos too. If it wasn't a copyright strike, that probably could have been our theme song. <laughs> so but I just, I, it has nothing to do with anything. It just reminded me of it really. No, I mean, come on. That's it, If there was any episode that we were going to digress like that, it's got to be Phantom of the Paradise. Because again, this movie, it has a narrative track. It has yes, narrative yes. influences. You can dig into this so deep if you really want to. But if you just want to go and enjoy glam rock, camp, retellings of Faust, the picture of Dorian Gray, and the Phantom of the Opera, yeah, go right ahead. And uh, there's a question that okay. came, up, came up to me in this film that links into an episode we really want to do. So okay. there's that part where, where Winslow slash the Phantom is bricked up in his studio mm-hmm. and he sees it. He gets angry and he somehow breaks through this brick wall, which leads me to ask, does Winslow Leach have dark man powers? Uh, I would say no. Only on the fact that I'm going very, very specific in this in this sense, and where we know that if nothing else beyond whatever steroid-driven power Darkman can have, he has no nerve endings. True. And it's like it's like it's like painted out to that way, where the Winslow stuff, it's not really. It, there's no real explanation to it. It's just that it's the devil because the yeah. devil. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, but it's but it's not like it's not like a origin story kind of thing to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, no, I, ju- I just wanted to ask the question because it, it was a fun thought that popped in and it's like, <laughs> dark man powers, wait, dark man powers, maybe? It would be funny if, you, if, you, if, it, like, if all of a sudden there's like a, a, a uncut version of Phantom that we don't know about and somewhere in the background there's just like a fake mask being made in the background through like a, you know what, look, I don't want to jump off tra- trail here now too. But no, thinking we of, can't because we need to do that dark man episode. We are going to do a dark man episode, but thinking of, just, I'm not going to, we're not going to talk about it, but just think about Dark, you know, look, I, I, I hate when everybody wants to go, oh, the Simpsons predicted this, Simpsons predicted that. That, 
having something exist and then existing later doesn't mean it predicted it. There's a difference between actual prediction and just something coming to fruition. But think about Darkman's quote unquote prediction about 3D printers, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Just <laughs> Dr. Peyton Westlake was ahead of his time. We'll and... talk about that another time. Oh, we'll talk about that another oh, time. Oh, and then eventually. Yes, please, Josh Rubin. We'll even do the whole trilogy if you want, because I will talk about all three of those movies because the other two are very valid and very good for like, that was the early direct-to-video era. And I, no, no, I will not let you add this. Arnold Vosloo was great and Die, Dark Man, Die has a hell of a, oh, that ending. Oh. We'll talk, we'll talk about all this another time because yeah. we're, getting, we're getting off the point again. We're getting off the point. That's not a song from anything. See, the th- and, and again, to Emily's point, the songs are great in here, but yeah. it's what they're ones that you really have to listen to to memorize. Like, it's very easy to memorize Time Warp, but it's not as easy to memorize the songs in here because it's just, it's not as simple. There is more, you, you really have to dig in. Look, I don't want to try to downplay or talk sorry and that's not a knock against rocky horror Horror and i'm not trying to i'm not trying to talk against songwriters even about people like steven sondheim let's i'm not trying to talk about anything they do but it it, it goes to the fact of the type of songwriter paul williams is compared to what traditional contemporary musical and or just filmatic cinematic filmatic cinematic songwriting is you know oh, but yeah i just uh and especially because i was a kid that grew up with the muppet movie and i love his songs in that movie and i love his and one of the one of the other things that kind of makes me upset is he once went on record on an interview saying that he was so deep in his habit with muppet christmas carol that he really didn't remember most of the music he wrote and he wasn't i don't think he was a huge fan of it afterwards that's wonderful music muppet and christmas i might carol? if i'm misremembering this then you know may paul williams gently tell me that i'm remembering it incorrectly well paul give us a call you're always inv- you're always welcome on the show playing oh i would about. love to have him on here we can't talk about fan of the paradise again though can we well, we could probably ask him like put well see that's the whole thing we get the inside track we would ask him ask people inside track so if even if you've been in a film if to to further future celebrity talent if you've been in a film that's on our list but we already covered it we will still gladly talk to you, especially because we could do extra Patreon episodes of that when we get that up and running, or we should probably start banking content for that. Yes. But yeah, just, I, I would love to talk to him about his, his experiences writing the music for Phantom of the Paradise and whatever film that he chooses. But he has, he's such a good villain in this. Like he's, he's just this sort of charming, like, He's not total Bond villain, but he's got notes that, like, mm. if they cast him to be one in that era, it would have he would have went up toe to toe against Roger Moore so brilliantly. Yeah, no, it would have worked. It could have worked out. Yeah, though. Yeah, even Dalton. Though I, I mean, look, I'm not trying to be again talking down about people. I don't know how much Bond would be up for, and I'm talking about any any era of Bond. And correct me if I'm wrong, since you know a lot more than I do. Having your main villain be a little short. I don't know honestly i mean they pro- all right if they did it back in that era they would have played it up so much because oh closest- yeah it would have been a big like talking point in the actual because film right saw- yeah because you saw how they had uh, her finishes as knickknack and the man with the golden gun 
Yeah, and he's I'm not sure, the main villain, you know. Yeah, but still, I think there were a couple jokes here and there, and it's like, imagine a whole villain getting I mean, those jokes. I mean, think think about it. And I'm not trying to get off track again, but again, since you're the Bond guy, um, minus Blofeld, thinking about all of the most iconic Bond villains, they're all really fucking tall. Christopher Lee, even Jonathan Price to a point, you know, for the later years, Christopher Walken, you know, there's all of them have something about being really tall. Or at least, you know, average height, but yeah. I mean, I'm still getting that for, for your eyes only episode. I don't know who it'll be with, but we're getting that episode one day. We'll do but some research. Back to Phantom of the Pit. Yes. <laughs> I mean, just I wish that this had more of an afterlife that Rocky Horror did because this is something you could very easily keep doing midnight shows with. I think this would even be a fantastic stage musical. Like, even, it, yeah. I think it's something that in many ways fits more into my personal preference of things where like, yes, there are things I love that are not very popular. And I like that they're not very popular because they still feel special to me. And yeah. they still have people who appreciate them, even if they don't watch them or listen to them, whatever it may be. But if they became the biggest thing in the world, I'd probably get upset a little bit. So it has that designation of being, I think, more of that like impressive, you know, like you got to be in the know type of feeling, even with it being a cult classic compared yeah. to just like being everywhere in the world. So I don't know why I said yeah. it like that. No, that's, that's understandable. Like you, you still want to have those things where like you share it with your friends or it feels special when you yeah. talk to someone that's like, you've never seen Phantom of the Paradise. Okay. We're throwing that on right now. Which was and, basically happened to Emily. Yeah. And this influenced and, and inspired so like uh, so many people and a couple, uh, like three that I'm going to mention that are particularly my favorite examples. Who ends up getting an album signed? I don't remember who was Phantom of the Paradise. But who gets their album signed when they're 16 at a Paul Williams concert? Guillermo del Toro, who then had started work with Paul Williams on a Pan's Labyrinth musical at some point, but I don't know what's going on with that. Oh, I have no idea. So that's one. Two, Edgar Wright is inspired with the chaos theater and with Gideon Graves by Ben and the Paradise and Swan. So that's something that, you know, that's locked in there. And then there's one that I thought of that I don't think, I don't know if it's confirmed. I'd have to dig a little deeper for it, but okay. I wouldn't be surprised if it was the case. Daft Punk has this song on Random Access Memories called Touch. Hmm. They got Paul Williams to sing it. And it's this beautiful song. And it starts off with like this sort of vocoder, like machine voice singing, like, you know, about touch, I need something more. And then it goes into his voice. And it sort of reminded me of, you know, Winslow and they're like sort of tuning his voice box and he sounds so machine-like at first and then he starts to sound like himself. Mm. So I wouldn't be surprised if Daft Punk does seem to fit in the sort of people that would be inspired by something like Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, hey, we can, we can start talking about the possibility of Daft Punk's helmets starting off trying to be a Winslow kind of thing. That, look, the evidence, the evidence is piling up here, folks. Robert Stack would confirm it. Unsolved mysteries joke, in case anybody needed, needed a, a, a lot of different, a lot. There's a lot of levels of that, too, when you think about it. You said stacking up before. You said... 
Ah, oh, I did not even think about that. Oh. But with that, everybody, I think it's time you all go out. You cross Fan of the Paradise. So if you're overdue rentals list, go, go see it if you haven't seen it yet. Get ready for the new Mystery Science, 3, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Get on that gizmo. Uh, Subscribe <laughs> to the Gizmoplex. I, I was about to say Gizmodoplex, so I had to cut myself off. Thank you for saving me there. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh man. I, you know what? Beyond Atlantis just... Like I like I told Emily, it really just there is no loss of step. They just threw in a new host. But yeah, she and just, we should yeah, because we should clarify for people who don't know yet. That's it's the third episode of the season, which is Emily's first main yes. per episode, which is why we bring it up a few times. Yes, because they start off with Jonah, I believe, and then mm-hmm. does Joel come back this season? I forgot. Yes, yeah, all three of them. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. We also got I mean Mary Jo's back. It's oh, gonna be a lot yes, of fun for people. Oh, I, I love Mary Jo Peel. And I love all the stuff that they've been doing like on the side. Like so many of them have podcasts and like Mary Jo Peel does Twitch streams with like, she was doing a Twitch stream the other night with vintage commercials and I missed it. And I need to do that because not only do I love watching vintage commercials, but I love <laughs> Mary Jo Peel's humor. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we got to get her on the show too. We've been talking about it for a while. We have a mystery science theater checklist here, folks. We will not rest until we've fulfilled it. And, yeah, but go back, uh, listen to Frank's episode, listen to Trace's episode if you haven't already. Oh, Frank joined us for Looper, Trace joined us for Dread, and those yep. were two, the two hours of pure bliss right there, man. I mean... But Mike, where can people find us if they need to find us out there in the, uh, the, the world of the internet? Well, if you do want to find the Overdue Rentals show, uh, we are not sadly not playing at the Paradise Theater because for some reason it's been closed down they say it's cursed. I think it's charming. But if you want to find us, we're on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show. On Twitter at Rentals Overdue. On Facebook at Overdue Rentals. Should you want to send us emails of love letters, uh, suggestions, or cantatas based on archaic German folklore, you can send them to us at OverdueRentals at gmail.com. And since you're on the internet, because who isn't these days, you can find our back catalog, including those episodes we've mentioned and more. We're almost up to 50 here, folks. Wherever you ethically source your podcast, which is Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, just Audible. We're on Audible, folks. You could listen to Dan Stevens read Frankenstein on Audible with a subscription, but you don't have to have a subscription to listen to us. At least I don't think so. But, But subscribe. But, oh no, subscribe to, well, I, I was saying if you, well, if Audible wants to sponsor us, they can subscribe to Audible. I'm talking about an Audible subscription. Oh, okay. Meanwhile, an overdue rental subscription is absolutely free because wherever you find us, you can just subscribe to us and not and also rate and review our show because we want to keep the rental counter open. And in order to do that, we need to know what snacks to stock, what films to rent, and what you want to hear from us because we care. Matthew. Well, Bye-bye.